welcome back and thanks for tuning in to Oil & Gas Onshore, where I am on a relentless pursuit to bring value, unity, and information to the energy industry one conversation at a time. So sit back, relax, and remember that even this very device you're listening on requires some form of hydrocarbon. This episode is brought to you by Technip FMC, a company who truly represents the future of energy. Hey everyone, look, not only do you get awesome weekly content by listening, now you've got a chance to win some serious swag brought to you by Technip FMC. Each week, one lucky listener will win a bundle of gear, which includes everything I'm about to list. Seriously, everything. An audio duffel bag, a Yeti tumbler, an executive power bank power charger, a Columbia neck gator, and a set of Ace Pods 2.0, which are the true wireless Bluetooth earbuds. All you got to do is click the link in the show notes and enter your information to win. Simple. Now go get your swag on. Welcome to this week's episode. I'm here at the Canon with Ryan Dawson, Chief Corvinaut at Corva. Brian, I have to ask, so what inspired you to change your title and did it have anything to do with Elon Musk changing his? Because I feel like it was at somewhat of the, t- the same time. So either you inspired him or he inspired you or maybe it was just t- completely coincidental. But yeah. what, what, what happened there? He's I think been trolling a- my LinkedIn, I guess, is what happened. I know. It seems like it. <laughs> the CEO title is a little boring. I think I'm looking for something that speaks more to our culture and and what we're doing. Everyone here at Corvus Corvinaut, so that just seemed like the natural place to go. Yeah, no, I love it, and I mean, I like the creativity, and especially doing something like that, which goes, you know, typically against the old school conservative way of thinking. And you mentioned the C word, and that's culture, and and I think that's actually a good place to start. How would you define culture? Because I think it's something that gets thrown around. People, oh, we need a good culture, whether that's organizational culture, whether that's behavioral culture, or whether that's, you know, just there, there's so many, it's it's kind of a loose term and everyone's like, we want to go somewhere with a culture, but but what does that mean for you and why is it important for you guys here at Corva? Because you guys have, you know, basically disrupted a lot of areas, including culture. So I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Culture is the guide rails that help you make every decision and your work through the day. So the culture is essentially like, what are you optimizing for? What are your values? And if you have the values defined right, they will help you make every decision. So, you know, for Corva specifically, one of our biggest and our our first one is being bold. Mm. So everything you do is, you have to question, are you being bold? Another one is responsibility. Another one is transparency. And another one is security. So we have four values. If you look at any decision or any work you're doing throughout the day, hopefully that's sort of guiding that. And so I think it's really important because you might not understand what is culture used for or like what is the benefit, but then it becomes the underpinning which does everything. So it's kind of this interesting thing. And that's one of the biggest things that I do at my job is sort of I'm cultivating the culture or I'm modifying it or I'm shifting it in various ways because at some point I'm disconnected from a lot of people at the company. And so mm-hmm. they have to be, you know, working within this framework that's moving in the same direction. Right. No, th- and that's a great answer. And so what's interesting is, I didn't know this until somewhat recently, is you're actually from Midland. And so typically, I mean, there's a level of sort of assumption that someone from Midland is raised in oil and gas family, quite conservative. So it somewhat goes against the narrative of someone from West Texas to be an early adopter and and talking about culture and and creating arguably one of the coolest offices here. And so it's kind of like, wow, like 
this guy from Midland is doing this and he's creating that and he's talking, you know, in sort of referencing and, and you don't, you know, have the image of someone from West Texas. And so where, at what point in your life did you say, you know what, like, I'm going to go, you know, a little bit when people are zigging, I'm going to zag. And so can you kind of explain at what point was there an inflection point? You said, you know what, like, I'm going to change the perception and I'm going to be an early adopter and go against the typical, you know, oil and gas conservative ways. Like, was there a point in your life or how would you describe that? I was never wearing boots. So that was was never me. Okay. Uh, But I specifically remember after the ninth grade, so that's middle school, Mm -hmm. I just took a different path in life. Uh, I I was just reading a lot of books and my head was in different places and I sort of escaped where I was in Midland and moved to the metaverse or to, yeah. to the internet, so to speak, of where my location was. What drove that? It's a good question. Because there's an underlying, I would imagine, because everything that we do in life is where we're typically a product of our environment. So there's something that like either you're genetically predisposed to be interested in something beyond the surface or was there like an event where you saw something? I mean, does anything kind of come to mind that made you that way? It was probably a lot of factors. So my grandfather was, he was a pilot, he traveled around the world, and he was really big into sort of stocks and investing. So from a very young age, I would go spend the summers with him and kind of like, you know, you wake up and read the the Wall Street Journal and kind of like talk about all these stocks. It's not something I do anymore. But you know, that was a shift. So I was like, I was, I was doing all these strange like economic analysis at the time. I was doing a lot of like computer science at the time that I shifted doing software related stuff. I think I just grew out of like what was Midland. And I think Mm -hmm. that's great. That's lovely. It was just ambition in terms of trying to do something different. Yeah. I don't ever think you know where you're going to end up. It's I think it's a bad idea to think, hey, I know where my career is going to take me or where the life is going to go. I'm always a big believer in saying yes to the things that you're uncomfortable in because that is when actually the magic happens. That's when the really great things come to you. You probably have friends, I do too, which they they say only only yes to the things in their comfort zone. And you can see like nothing necessarily great comes to them. I mean, they live a comfortable life, but they're they're not presented with interesting opportunities. I think it's always hard to say yes, though, right? You, yeah. you, you want to always say no. You always want to do what's comfortable. But I've always found that those are where the biggest like pleasure points come from. Right. And yeah, and kind of going back to, like you said, just sort of seeking beyond what was there. You know, a lot of times the ones that were meant to stand out were never really meant to fit in to begin with. And so I think that's a prime example of that. And so do you remember... Because it's almost like it's a muscle. You train yourself to be comfortable with the uncomfortable. Because the first time, it's the fear of the unknown. It's, well, what happens after this point? And it's, you know, you get to that certain point, it's almost like a cliff. And like, I don't know if you've ever been cliff jumping in the water or, or like jumping out of a plane or anything like that. But I remember growing up in British Columbia in Canada and, you know, growing up on the lakes, there's the Okanagan Lake has a lot of places where you can cliff jump and you can jump off a five foot cliff, a 10 foot cliff, and they go all the way up to 40. And it's that, you know, you walk over the edge and you look down and it's just water and it may only be five feet. But the first, you know, that five foot jump, you're like, holy smokes, like this is intense. And then you build yourself up, build yourself up. But then when you go back to that five foot cliff, you're like, you could do it with your eyes closed. And so do you remember certain points in your early life that, you develop that sort of that muscle and that grit to be able to push yourself past the uncomfortable zones? Was there any inf- sort of point where that really started that? 
I've talked about this a little bit internally, nothing externally. So I was in the Boy Scouts. I think a lot of people were growing up. Mm-hmm. It's not really my style these days. I, sure. I, don't, I don't know how to explain that. But at the time, it was something interesting that I got into. Now, most people have like their parents or they, they're involved in these Boy Scouts where it's like, it's really like, you know, coddled experiences. From what I remember, everything was like super adversity. Mm. So one time we went on this kayaking trip in the Brazos and it was completely, the water was was empty. So we essentially carried it down something like 40 miles, you know, it was like in and out or um, this this other time, like, and no one like told us these things, like this other time I was camping in the snow and they didn't say, don't leave your shoes outside because they'll freeze. You know, that happened. (laughs) I was putting up a tent one time in like Fort Davis and like, I would literally hold the tent up and it would go horizontal because the wind was, was, you know, 40 miles an hour. At that point, no one ever stepped in, like no adult stepped in and said, like, here's how you have to do it. I also remember every single time on these trips, I I was responsible for my own food and it was like horrible. Mm. And so it was like this strange relationship <laughs> where like it really sucked. Yeah. Don't ask me why I kept going, why, you know, I actually continued to become an Eagle Scout. And, yeah. But it was really crappy and that adversity even today, I would think about that and say, hey, would you put your kids through that? And I'd say, no, whatever that was going on there, you can't replicate that. It's like today, people that are in the Boy Scouts, it's probably a completely different thing. I'm sure mm-hmm. you can go back in time. Other people had a completely different experience, like more like Indian guides or yeah. you know something like that. But whatever happened, I was thrown to the wolves and have to be really, really thankful for that. Yeah. So that is a very interesting topic. So this was something that in my grad school, we, I mean, a class called organizational behavior, and we discussed rite of passages. And for females, just through natural and, and their biology, they go through rite of passage. It's, you know, from when a girl turns into a woman, things change, you know, cycles, everything else. But men don't really often go through that. And so it either has to be implemented or it has to be manufactured and you know back in the day like you said like that's something that perhaps for you was a rite of passage You're like wow okay I, I was able to accomplish this I faced adversity I overcome this challenge I'm kind of you know at this point I, I'm a man like if I can do that I can do anything and if I can experience that and and I don't you know let it take me down and let it defeat me if I can defeat it then then perhaps that was your rite of passage and so I mean I think that's a fascinating story to to talk about and reflect back on because you know as a child you don't really have any ideas like well this is happening and you adapt and you figure it out and I think as adults we so easily get back like you said into the comfort zone and if something feels uncomfortable or you know that something that maybe is challenging it's so easy to just kind of go back into the that you know I, I almost think of it as like a, when you're playing if you're bowling and the ball goes into the gutter, it's hard for that ball to get out of the gutter. But once it's in there, it just stays in there. And I think that a lot of people live their life like that. And you typically end up going through the finish line, but you don't hit any pins over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that's a really neat story. And before we keep going, I do need to highlight some fascinating technology by our sponsor, which is Technip FMC. Their new and integrated iComplete ecosystem is digitally enabled and it delivers efficiency benefits by dramatically reducing components and connections while simultaneously providing real-time data to operators about well-pad operations. Technip FMC is continuing to push the limits in order to achieve full-frack automation. To discover more about all the benefits of iComplete, click the link in the show notes or check them out on LinkedIn for more details. 
Also, we're doing monthly happy hours here in Houston with OGGN. Check out OGGN.com for more details. And actually, I think the last one was here at Core. So really appreciate Corva's hospitality. I heard it was great. And so thank you very much for letting us come in here and, and use the space. And also for everyone out there, if you're an avid podcast listener and you're looking for more, which I know there's a ton out there, but OGGN is continuing to push new podcasts out regularly. We're covering everything from new technology, ESG, leadership, and a whole bunch more. So again, check out the website for more details. So Ryan, I want to kind of pivot here. I'm curious, how are you innovating this year, but not specific to say product offerings, but more through marketing and perhaps some interesting strategies as a business? Can you speak a little bit on that? Yeah. So I spend all of my day thinking about where is the grand slam going to come from? Maybe you've heard that in other places, but what I think is like a lot of people are making advancements that are very linear and low growth, you know, 1.1x, 2x, 1.5x. I'm looking for what is the 100x return on the investment. I think we have a lot of the basics covered in terms of like, you know, do you offer great customer service? Do you care a lot about data quality? Do you care about customer happiness? You know, things like that. I think we, we do a lot there. So I think what is the biggest place to innovate is like, how do you really do something bigger. So at least 10x, hopefully over to 100x. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of just to get you in the frame of mind. That's that's what I think a lot about. And that is really tough because people are not used to making bets like that. Mm -hmm. That is not natural. The other thing that's hard for me is I'm always a few steps ahead. So to have patience to wait for strategies to play out. It turns out that a lot of strategies actually do, if you map it out and you think about it and, and you know, you're pretty good at strategy, like they actually play out, but they might take five years. Right. Who has the patience to last that? Elon Musk is the best example of like, he's looking at things on the 30 year time frame. Mm. Right now, a lot of people might say Neuralink is a joke or, you know, it's not accomplishing much. I think the guy's looking at 30 years and it's like everyone else is looking at two and that's a long time to to invest in something and make that a reality. So of course, at Corva, I think all of that's happening. So how do you market? How do you market? You know, what is the category you're in? A lot of that is around perception of the, the people you're with or your customers. And it's like, I don't think there's enough effort spent there thinking about what is the, you know, if you think about your customer, how do they think about you? And so you really have to understand that. And I don't know that Corva does the best job of this and we're trying to fix it right now. We're actually about to go live with a bunch of stuff. But the idea is like, you really have to clean up what is your message and really just, just be able to communicate that over and over. Yeah. Right now, if you look at LinkedIn or anyone's marketing, it's kind of like all across the board. It is. And if you're really trying to, if your goal is to sell something or your goal is to like get into your customer's mind in a specific way, you need to figure out how to do that better. Right. So I think there's a lot to be said about, are you the first in your category? And when customers think about your category, they think of you. Right. So I think there's a lot to be said for that. I think innovation in oil and gas, we're really at this turning point where you have people that are getting out of oil and gas. And then you have people that are staying. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of like, who's going to plant their flag and stay? You got to go kind of all in. I believe people that go half and half, 
they're going to have trouble sort of like hitting those grand slams. Mm. And so, but if you do look at that, I think we're really set up to be this grand digital ecosystem for oil and gas across the whole, at least upstream specter. Yeah, no, that's interesting. It's because I think a lot of companies, and I would argue that you have sort of this vision, but you look back in history and a lot of companies that have failed or didn't you know, see the opportunity or have that sort of runway vision to see what was coming, ultimately ended up failing and other companies overtook them. You look at Blockbuster and Netflix. Okay, Blockbuster said, we are a company who rents videos. And then Netflix come and said, no, we need to be like, we need to be a company that brings entertainment into the home. And it was such a broader spectrum and they could see a vision. Then you look at like, even before that, the rail industry, a lot of, and I forget exactly the specifics on it, but I was reading something in Harvard Business Review talking about, it was actually marketing. And it said, you know, there was a company that said, you know, someone asked, well, what do you guys do? Well, we're a train company. And then they got overhauled by another company and they just said, no, we are a transportation provider. And so I would argue that Corva is not a tech company. You're something bigger than that. How would you describe what is Corva? I mean, because you're a tech company, but I feel like there's more to it. We are, if you want to speak in those terms, we are essentially the vehicle to the future of energy. I like that. Everything will go digital all the workflows of what people do will change. And every day we're trying to figure out how do we accelerate that? So the world is going to go to where it goes naturally. Mm -hmm. You can resist it. That's not my nature. That's not hopefully anyone in nature at Corva. So, or you can sort of define, you know, they say the best way to predict the future is to invent it. Yeah. I really, really believe in that. There are study working groups that get together and define specifications for oil and gas about what the future would be. I've never seen an example of where that's actually worked out because the reality is someone has to believe that and actually build it. Mm -hmm. If you're not the one building it, it will never happen. Yeah. I love that you said, and I think as you said, you're a vehicle into the future for energy, or, or I may have not quoted it exactly, but however you said, that was, that was really cool. And it, it almost gave me goosebumps because I think it's folks like yourself that break the mold and really it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, Uber disrupted the transportation business. So now taxis are obsolete basically. And you look at like companies like Airbnb, they disrupted the way we vacation smartphones, you know, disrupted the way we communicate. And so perhaps, you know, and, and I always ask folks is who's going to be the Uber of oil and gas and not necessarily from a transportation perspective, but who's someone who's going to come in and completely flip everything upside down and just create this mass opportunity for, you know, business and technology and innovation. And so, again, it, it kind of sounds like you're on that relentless pursuit of that, which which is fascinating. I want to ask a question, again, just, you know, maybe take a deep breath, but I'm going to change it up a little bit. So for you, you're, you know, obviously busy, you're working all the time, running the company. But, you know, what is an ideal Friday night for you? What does that look like? And if you could do anything in the world on a Friday night, what would that look like? Assuming you had no other obligations, you could go anywhere at any point in time, mm -hmm. what, what would you do? Well, of course, I would teleport to somewhere else in the world. Uh, <laughs> yeah, first and foremost, right? Yeah, right. So Where would that be? Right now, you know, tomorrow night, which would be Friday, I would yeah. transport to the Dolomites in Italy. Okay. And I'd be hanging out there in a quaint little town having a, a great dinner. Nice. Um, what would that dinner consist of? It would definitely have some pasta in it. 
that's for sure. It would have some white wine from Alto Adige in that region. It would have, there's actually this really interesting, I've seen this, I was in a town like this and they had the students of this town. It's a very small town. There was essentially a concert hall that opened up across the street from this restaurant. Wow. And they played there as I was having dinner. What? And they played a some movie score. Huh. And so you can imagine this like amazing like symphony music score, oh my you know, gosh. going on. What an experience. And yeah, and it, it's just incredible. Wow. So that's that's where I'll be tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, that's hey, and you know what? Like I, I love that. That's such a good answer because most people most people just don't even think like, well, what would I do on a, a night that I had no other obligations to do? And because, you know, we're, we're such robots and we do the same thing in the same, you know, so I think it's neat to to kind of expand and, and, you know, think about what that may look like. When you were a kid, you know, and it may have been the Boy Scouts, but what was your favorite hobby? Like, was there something that, you know, kind of, whether it was sports, whether it was, you know, like you said, working with computers or computer gaming, gaming. Okay. Yeah. You call me one of those. Yeah. I, I, re- I really realized like one time I had sat in front of the computer without moving for 12 hours. Wow. Playing Counter-Strike. That's commitment. I'm said, oh, this is the biggest waste of time <laughs> of my life. Or was it? It was so engaging though, right? That's yeah. obviously why I didn't move. Yeah. <laughs> I remember at an earlier age, so my brother was more of the pioneer in terms of getting into gaming. Okay. Early like internet. So at 9 p.m., both of the phone lines of the house would go offline, right? Because we'd both dial in yeah. separately. Uh, <laughs> nice. I, I, this was playing World of Warcraft and he, yeah. I, he supposedly I lost him the match and he was like, you know, oh boy. very prestigious in these clans. And so he, he basically said, I'm never playing with you again. <laughs> <laughs> did he hold true to his? Yeah, to he that? did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was banned. Does he bother you? Cause I messed up some strategy that he no. thought was core. He probably had been working on it and scheming for so long. And then here comes little brother just messing everything up. I'm amateur hour. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, do you game now? No. Really? No. If you had the time, would you? No. Really? You have other important things to do or this just doesn't interest you as much. I see some friends have like the virtual reality stuff. I love to do that every now and then like, yeah. I feel like every six months I run into that. That That's really cool. Yeah, no doubt. Hey, it's Mark LaCour, editor-in-chief here at OGGN. Sorry for interruption, but I wanted to bring up a few quick things for September. First, our happy hour. If you don't know this, our happy hours are usually last Thursday of each month here in Houston, unless there's a holiday. And this month is no different. It's going to be Thursday, September 30th at the Canyon. Our happy hours are much more than a social event. Our happy hours include a learning component, very strong networking, food and drinks, and then most importantly, the money that we raise goes to fight human sex trafficking. So by you showing up at our happy hours and participating, you're helping us fund the fight. So thank you. Then we have a new show, our Low Carbon Solutions show. It is awesome. It's very pro oil and gas. At the same time, we're also exploring low carbon solutions. And if you don't know this, besides the podcast you're listening to right now, We have 14 other podcasts for your listening pleasure. You can find them all at OGGN.com or any place that you download and listen to podcasts. Then finally, if you want to do something different, if you want to play a role with us here at OGGN, maybe have a little bit of fun, join the OGGN Street Team on LinkedIn. Just go search for OGGN Street Team, sign up. It's completely free to you. It's our all-volunteer group doing really cool stuff, such as reading pro oil and gas books to elementary school kids. Yes, you heard me right. We are helping educate our world's young people on the pros of oil and gas, on the advantages of the fact that hydrocarbons are the most valuable molecule to mankind. We're doing that. Why don't you come help us with that? 
And if you don't want to help us with that, maybe you can help us with our social media or being a part of our press team or 101 other things. But we can't do anything unless you sign up at Lincoln. So go do it right now. Hopefully this was not too much of an interruption. I will see you again next month. You know, what's been your worst experience running a company? And I'm sure every experience you can learn from it. But what's one thing that you're like, you know what? That really kicked me in the in the face. And I hope I don't ever have to do that again. Does anything come to mind? Definitely like early on, very early on, you would not win contracts mm. that you needed or you thought you needed to survive. So mm. that has always been from experience, like really hard. Things don't happen as you as you wanted to them to happen. Yeah. Nowadays, I'm lucky because I'm in a, I'm in a different world. But like early on, that's just really hard to get over. Is like, how do you keep going when everything you you think of is going? It seems to be going wrong. Mm. You know, when we go back to we're talking about these five year time frames. Okay, maybe you maybe you had the strategy right, and you just needed to wait five years. Early on, if you don't have revenue or you don't have certain things, like how do you wait? Right. Yeah. So. That stuff is really painful. I, I remember I would drive, this is prior to Corva having any customers, you drive to meetings. And I think everyone that's been in oil and gas has experienced this. There are some people that are so rude and degrading. Mm. And as a founder or someone trying to bring change or do something positive to the world, it's like, they see it as their mission to like set that back. And it's not me. I'm sure everyone's done this, even anyone that is in sales. And it's, yeah. that's a terrible feeling, right? Mm-hmm. Why do you suppose oil and gas is like that? And is there a specific generation? And actually, let's not even call that out. But, but, but traditionally, it's known for that. Why do you think that is? Part of it is I believe that people work their way up through the field or, or that was the mentality in like, you are treated like crap, and then you sort of turn around to do the same thing. Now, that's not, of course, that's not, this is a blanket statement. I think of 95% of people are, are great. Uh, but yeah, I think it's a chain of command, you know, military type style. You do what I say. But the problem is the industry has a problem, which is they overexpand and over collapse, right? And it, mm. that's that sucks. Yeah. And it's always have like, I love what's going on right now with a lot of companies where they're not overspending. It's yeah. very, very healthy. Yeah. And I look around and we have employees at Corva and, I, and, and every company and I'm like, great. That means people's jobs are safe because there's not crazy stuff going on. I just, the way that the industry treats a lot of people has, it's all connected. Mm-hmm. It's all connected. If you're a service company at the bottom, you are connected to the operators you work with, right? So yeah. when your business is cut, there's things that happen. And that's not a great thing. But I love where we are currently yeah. in no, the it, industry. It, it is exciting. And you know, the investment community, I feel like, has obviously spurred everyone to get their act together. Because if not, we, we'd be in a very serious... We would have a serious problem coming down the pipeline, no pun intended. But for us to gain investor confidence now and to actually report some free cash flow, dividends, share buybacks, like it's all these things are are awesome. And, and I, I just hope that this is a sustainable model. And what's going to be interesting to me is when the demand reaches levels that go above pre-COVID levels, let's say 101, 102 million a day, we're going to have to ramp up drilling and production and completion and everything else to fill that demand gap, hopefully 
we're efficient enough to drill more with less and, and not get into a position where we're over leveraged, trying to grow production and we get back into this, this cycle. And then next thing you know, you know, maybe we don't wrap up, but then OPEC and everyone else starts filling the market with, with oil. And so it's, it's, a, we're kind of at an interesting point in the road, but I feel at least now companies are, are disciplined. They understand what the investment community wants, which a lot of it, not only do they want, you know, returns, you know, it's the ESG, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Like, so I, I think there's a pivotal moment in our industry. Hopefully it, it continues to carry on because right now it feels great. <laughs> and so I, I like, I like $70 oil. Our customers are making money, which means that hopefully we can start making money again. And yeah, it's a good space. So going back again to the more personal stuff, what do people misunderstand about you the most? I'm very direct, but it doesn't mean that when I say something, I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. Right. I just think the world has been conditioned. The way we speak, the way we wrap everything that we say in like niceties. Yeah. The way that my brain works is matter of fact. If you're doing a poor job or you're doing a great job, you know, that's the biggest thing people misunderstand. I just, yeah. you know, I, I think about things as just like a system. Okay, here's the problem or here's the, the benefit or here's the whatever. And the reality is most people want to hear a lot of comfy, comfortable, you know, touchy-feely. Right. Would you say that, you know, just again, generally speaking, we've become much more sensitive as a society? Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, <laughs> how do we deal with that? Do you just like mm-hmm. kind of stick to your guns and then hopefully people you know, somewhat adapt to that? Or, or do you do you feel like you have to adapt to that? Or should it adapt to you? Or is that even something you consider? Especially, and I, and I say that more from like an employee perspective. Uh-huh. So last week, I, well, things that I do as the CEO, they they can mag- magnify. Last week, anyone that at Corvette that's listening to this will, will get a good laugh. But late at their nighttime, I unsubscribed from about 30 Slack channels. Okay. Because I was doing cleanup. People were like, what is going on? And they, like there was this big like <laughs> yeah. you know, problem that happened here of people just like wondering what was going on. And I was just doing, you know, summer tidy up. Yeah. But so, you know, Jonathan Haidt, he's an author. He's talked a lot about this is like the coddling of a, the American, I forget the title of the book, but, okay. you know, this is what's happening about safetyism. You know, there's tons of stuff being talked about this. And, you know, this was predicted like five more years ago. I think what I'm talking about is a little bit different than that. But the thing is, a lot of companies, so Ariana Huffington, one of her core values at any company she builds is, can you take direct feedback? And I guess also give it. And every interview, she's trying to discern if you are in that camp or not. And that is based, hmm. so they're going to like make that. that higher based on that. And so that's their core value. That's not core of us. But I think, you know, that is one way you can you can look at that. And you can basically say, I do have to say, it's very disruptive to have people on the team that are allergic to direct feedback. It is hard. Mm-hmm. And so working with me, if you, if people can't 
take that direct, you know, that's going to be very difficult to work with me. Yeah, no, I feel like nowadays you should be able to take a punch to the mouth and be okay with it. You know what I mean? Like, and it's hard sometimes for people to do that, but I can identify with that. I mean, and maybe it's growing up playing sports, but I didn't have coaches that coddled me. They told me exactly what they thought of me at that point in time, whether it was a play or a certain game and you take it and, and hopefully, you know, hopefully you can dissolve your ego enough to really look in the mirror and learn from it, which is hard, especially as males. The ego is the enemy. I don't know if you've heard of the book, but Ryan Holiday, great author, if anyone out there hasn't heard of him. But I think that's great. And, And again, like I think if that's, if people understand the expectation coming here, then there really shouldn't be any surprises, right? Uh-huh. And so, and there's management strategies for like delivering feedback. And so, you know, sometimes I do that well. Sometimes other people give that feedback, you know, they call it the shit sandwich or whatever. And there's <laughs> yeah. various ways to, hey, you did this great, you did this bad, but then you also did this other thing great. Yeah. That to me is inefficient though. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, it's just a question of like, what are you building? Are you trying to build something really great and you don't have time for that? Or, you know, is that is that really important? But for sure, part part of that, a lot of. So one thing that I really believe in is as a separate kind of like sidetrack to this is osmosis. Mm. I really, really believe as a company or any company, you have this culture and it's like, how do you indoctrinate people to that? I really believe it's osmosis. So one thing I always encourage every team that has about three people minimum they need to have three to four people. They need to have one other person at all times who's sort of junior that's learning by osmosis. And I think that's the best transfer mechanism that you can sort of train the future generations for what you're doing. Right now, there's a lot of like job promotions at Corva and, I, and a, a lot of it is coming from internally. We've, we've been like this for a while, but I really love to see promotions happen within turn, you know, from people internally. Yeah. Yeah. And it's always surprises me what people are capable of. Cause sometimes I don't always see it. And then you're like, they're, they're doing stuff. And then it's like, they've really like had the opportunity or are given the opportunity to shine and they take advantage of it. Yeah, no, that's true. And actually it's interesting. Cause you, you guys have grown organically cause you haven't done any M and A's have you? And so through your growth, through your organic growth, what would you say the perception of change in organizational culture has been? And has is the culture the same now as it was when you made the company? And, and how has that, has it evolved? Has it gotten better? Has it grown on the core principles? Or is there something that's kind of surprised you say, you know what, like, our culture has kind of changed, but for the better. There's changes that have happened along the way. The biggest noticeable one being COVID and the contraction of oil and gas that changed so much in terms of how do we view the business? How do we view Mm. what we're doing here in terms of like employees and what, you know, what is our responsibility to them and like, how do we handle things? Okay. That's been like a great, huge growth opportunity. Most of COVID actually, we focused as a management team on rebuilding our skills in terms of like, how do we work with employees? How do we like make sure people are getting the feedback they need? They're getting to the places they need to go, you know, career ladders, what have you. Yeah. So we've really spent like so much time retooling when, when the activity level's been, been a little bit down that that's what we've spent a lot of time on. I think, yeah, of course the culture has definitely changed from every year. So and this is a little bit broader of an answer, but like mm-hmm. every six months, I am in a new job. Right. And and this applies to a lot of people at Corva too. And maybe your title's the same, 
but the business has fundamentally changed or your growth is different or you're doing something different. Yeah. But that is a really hard thing for people at Corva to understand is like, once you just think you got the hang of your job, it's changed. Mm, yeah. And even, even for myself, that's always hard. Like, cause it's just, it always happens just as you're getting the hang of it. <laughs> yeah. I can identify. Okay. Yeah. No, that's, and, and again, it's, and at the pace of change that we experience in oil and gas, you have to be good with that. Right. And so have I, to be, yeah, no, that that's super interesting. What legacy do you want to be remembered for? Every day. And I think this should be the legacy of everyone that works at Corva is in every day. If Corva didn't exist, would the oil industry be worse off the energy industry? And hopefully the answer is yes. So Basically, what I'm saying is that we are here to accelerate the pace of change in energy to where it needs to be in the future. And that is a really noble thing because the pace of change is so slow. It's so anti where I think the world is going. I'm very good at just looking, hopefully, at these things objectively, like, okay, I work in oil and gas, but I can look at the world as a system. I don't need to have blinders on to say that, like, I only live and breathe oil and gas, right? So, I mean, so the the point is, like, you have to understand, like, where it's going and, like, where we can fit in. But the legacy of everyone here at Corvus should be, we are bringing that future quicker, Mm -hmm. which is going to make the world better off. So in terms of ESG, you know, like minimal impact to the land, digitalization, you're actually doing things smarter, better, faster. You could sort of go on and on here. But here's the thing is I don't really see this happening if Corva doesn't do this. That's the kicker is like there's a little bit of strong hubris in that. But like I just look around, I'm like, okay, we're not getting to the future if we don't do this. Yeah. So we have to do this. Yeah. No, it's fascinating. And again, I think you are. And as long as you continue to push push that narrative, I mean, mm-hmm. I think it's just going to be it's just going to snowball and continue to break things down. Do you suspect you'll you'll enter into other avenues? I mean, looking down, say ten, fifteen years, would you want to be into all forms of energy? Are you looking to expand into different markets? I mean, what does that look like? Yeah, all of the above. But first and foremost, we're on a my goal right now is a billion dollars in revenue within the upstream sector. Okay. I think that's the first place we need to get to. Mm. And I think if we've got to a billion dollars, it means that we have provided a significant amount of value to the industry. So I think that first milestone is going to be a big deal just for everyone. But then at that point, you know, where does it go? Corva for people that know is a is a platform and a lot of like the the cutting edge stuff we're doing is it's a development platform. So we have one operator that has nine software developers building apps on Corva. Wow. So that's just one company and that that's a huge amount of people. So where can this go? You know, if you connect all the data and then you let people build all these interesting different applications that have different use cases and they can build those sort of at the speed of business, where does that go? Can that be applicable to other, to midstream and downstream? Of course. Where can it go outside of that? Of course, but like, I think focus is how you get success. And so right now we have to be laser focused because there's an immediate need and problem in front of us Mm -hmm. 
that's the first stop. And it, it's not, you know, this is not an only Corva thing. I think you, we talked about this before the podcast, but it, like we're trying to bring everyone. So service companies, partners, contractors, yeah. startups. That is also part of the success criteria is like, if we can't weave all that together, then we didn't succeed because this is not a Corva only thing. It can't be. Right. Yeah. No, it, you got to bring everyone along with you to keep it growing. No, then that's such a neat concept that you guys have going. Tell me about the most influential person in your life and how have they impacted you? Just sort of going through that. Yeah, I think, you know, I try to look at more modern examples, but like you're always kind of drawn to like your prehistory. So my grandfather, he he was always just very instrumental in like the way that I think and always doing things for efficiency, always sort of trying to make hard things look easy. Mm. And so just because it was early in my early years and teens and before that, that was just had a, like a huge impact on me. You know, I have to thank him for just a lot of like how I am today. Yeah. And you, you can't even like sort of grasp like what are the different metrics of that, but like they just happened through osmosis, right? Yeah. No, like you said before. Yeah. And I'm assuming, did you spend a lot of time with him as a, as a child? Yeah. So I'd spend like every summer I'd go sort of spend the summer with him, so to speak. Yeah. No, that's great. Where did he live? He was in the Phoenix area. Oh, okay. So, Interesting. Yeah. Was he born in the U.S.? Yep. Okay. From huh. I think Fargo, North Dakota. No kidding. Okay. Interesting. Maybe, yeah. Huh. And so what about the other side of the family? Is everyone mm. from the U.S.? or The other dig- side is the is the oil routes. So that's, okay. you know, Midland. You drive around, you'll find probably tombstones, you know, somewhere out. Uh, you, you track the geology or the genealogy sorry not the geology uh, <laughs> yeah. Freudian slip there but yeah the Midland side is like the oil you know rods through the blood right yeah so it's interesting to have those two connections and I think that's also has defined me right yeah I wouldn't there's no question I wouldn't be in the oil business had I not come from Midland or had that connection yeah no, it's, I don't know too many people from Midland that aren't in the oil field. One of the last questions here I have is if you could have coffee with anyone in the world, who would that be and where would you have coffee? Yeah, I think this is something like people think about and at a younger age, I probably tried to execute this a little bit and or like sent emails to people hoping for a response. And the reality is like what I was trying to do is like overthink some really smart question and then the the answer I got was like not even something I cared about, or it was like some exercise and like trying to prove something. Yeah. The reality is like if if you're gonna go sit down with any Titan, Steve Jobs, if he was alive, yeah. Elon Musk, I think the conversation wouldn't be that interesting. I actually think you're really this is my personal opinion. I don't yeah, think no, I have much to talk with them about because there's no history. You know, maybe maybe they were interested in talking about some topic that I was into at the moment, and then okay, that that could happen. But the reality is, what is the chance of that? It's like one percent. Yeah. And so when you think about like who you're going to meet in the world, I think it would probably be someone. Of course, I would love that intellectual stimulation, but I think I would want to meet with someone really fun. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like okay, let's go jump off that cliff. Right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that I think is 
you know, because at least you get something from that. Yeah. So. No, you know, it's fascinating. That's, that's an interesting answer because most people, like you said, would, would pick these figures who, whether it's some professional athlete or it's, you know, Elon Musk or Barack Obama or Trump or whoever, like just these figures that have so much attention and power and whatever. But like you said, the, the conversation, unless you've come into it looking for certain answers or perspectives that you've got some list of questions, like here's really some things that I want to know about this person that maybe would help change my perception or, or maybe could help me. But chances are you'd kind of, it would be maybe a little awkward, but I think that's really cool that, that you've got. Yeah, if you have the money, you can buy it. What is it like they bid for the the lunch with Warren Buffett? Is it like a few million dollars or something? <laughs> like, what do you even ask? I'm sorry. Like, even if you're like the right. expert of everything, like, what do you <laughs> yeah. ask him that like even, and this is another point, which is you hear this over and over from very successful people. And it's really hard to grok is like you have to learn this stuff for yourself and you have to be able to make these decisions for yourself. And we always think someone else has the answer. So I see things on right. Twitter a lot. Like someone will say like, did this and this and this. And then the, in the comments or like the replies, someone will say, well, like, do you have a book that like outlines that? And it's like, you'll never get to the same place unless you can like make that journey on your own and be able to make like decisions on your own. And yeah, I agree. There's no recipe. You have to, like Thomas, you said, like create it and go through it. And there's no shortcut to anything. Otherwise, it's synthetic. It's right. fake. Yeah. And, you know, you're really not going to get anything from it, I think. Yeah. No, I agree with that. Last question here. What stands in the way between you and perhaps complete happiness? They say that happiness is the absence of desire or sometimes it's being reframed that you can only have like really one desire at a time. That's basically it is like, how do you remove the want or desire for any material things? I desire a lot of experiences. And so, so that, that's kind of hard. Like I have to remove that, but like that is the key. And I think I've done a really great job of that in the last five years. Part of the biggest trouble is unhooking yourself from the hedonic treadmill or like even like what other people think. Mm. And so probably the best like test for this is like, you know, can you drive around in like the crappiest car that you see on the road and like, you know, go to the bar and like, you know, meet your significant other or, or whatever that may be. If you, if you can't do that, you're not there. Right. And so that yeah. is like, that's probably the, the biggest test. But like, I think that's like, when you get there, I think people will find you've got to happiness. Now the question is, you know, it's hard. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Most people have a challenging time and you chase it. But it, and again, I, I think a lot of it too is, you know, define happiness. And you see a lot of folks chasing something, and a lot of times they chase, you know, money or promotions. But, you know, I feel like not necessarily chasing, but but thriving and, and an understanding what truly makes somebody happy and making decisions that support that. I think it's important because as I think now, especially with social media, there's a lot of influence out there that that may throw people off and, and they, they may feel like, oh, once I achieve this or or once I, you know, have X amount of dollars in my bank, account, like that'll make me happy. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of times now, especially through COVID, I think it sort of realigned people's values and, and really got them to understand, like, what do I value and what, what really makes me happy? Because I'm sitting in this big house or I've got all this, got all that. And 
this doesn't mean anything when I'm disconnected to the from the world. I mean, physically. And so this kind of just spurred some interesting thought the, for me lately. The philosopher Rene Girard, one of his big concepts is called mimetic desire. And basically he says, you get your desires from seeing what other people have or want yourself. So you essentially copy all of your desires. Hmm. And wow. so that is also an area of conflict, right? Because we yeah. have limited resources in the world. Huh. Interesting. So he says, hmm. essentially, in essence, like you need to go to the forest by yourself yeah. and then you will come up with your own unique desires that you actually ha create yourself. Right. And if you can look from within, what you think might make you happy from everything that you're seeing might be completely opposite to what truly does. Maybe that's why people go on, you know, intense vision quests <laughs> and try and find that. But either way, I think it's an interesting topic. And again, this has been such an interesting conversation. Like I said, I want to do something a little different because everyone's, you know, kind of heard this story. But I do want to offer you the opportunity. Is Are there any services or any product offerings that you'd like to highlight that Corva is coming out with or anything down the pipeline that cause a lot of folks that listen are, you know, obviously interested in all these oil and gas and operators. So opportunity to pitch anything if, you, if, you, if you're interested for sure. Yeah, just yesterday, I've been watching a new software that we have coming out that we've been in development for a few years. So the idea is like, people have talked about software controlling drilling for a while, mm -hmm. in many regards. And I'm not I know there's been attempts for 20 years and whatnot. I do really think it's a hard problem. And I think like, most of the reason why people can't get further in doing drilling guidance software is they don't account for all the variables. And so something I just saw yesterday that's just really amazing is like we've worked on this software for a while. And like one of the things that Corva enables is the connection of disparate data that's been siloed previously. And it's kind of like a buzzword, like, oh, everyone's solving that in a sense. But I think really when you do solve it, it unlocks new new places. And I think we're on the cusp of new ways to drill, to complete do geoscience and all this stuff. And I, I got a glimpse into that yesterday with some stuff we're doing with an operator. And it's like, it's really cool to see what the future is. And I'm glad it's, it's happening. Yeah, no, that's good. Continuing to innovate. And, you know, I understand too, you guys are getting on the, into the completion side of things. So expanding is great. And so if folks are interested to hear more you know, obviously your website, is there any anywhere else people can look to either connect to Corva or if they're interested to hear more about you, I mean, anything else out there that you want to plug? No, Corva.ai. That's great. Also, you put some stuff on LinkedIn, like everyone. Uh, yeah. You know, where, where, you tell me, where is the world these days? Like, you know, is LinkedIn it, and TikTok. Are they actually on TikTok? Is the oil and gas business on TikTok? I think people are trying. Wise. Yeah. I, I think the, the influencers and the ones, you know, definitely creating content are, I don't know if there's value in it from a business perspective, you know, maybe test the waters. I don't know. I don't have that answer, but generally speaking, but it's another interesting conversation to have. And perhaps we can have that over a coffee one day. But with that said, I want to respect your time. I've probably burnt up more than I was supposed to, but for all the listeners out there, please like share review and always remember when the density's up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Thanks everybody. Thanks again for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of Oil & Gas Onshore, a production of Oil & Gas Global Network. For more information, visit OGGN.com.